It's Jim Cramer here. You're listening to the opening bell of CNBC's Squawk on the Street. Don't miss a minute of the action. Welcome to Squawk on the Street. I'm Carl Quintanilla with David Faber, Sarah Eisen at Post 9 of the New York Stock Exchange. Kramer has the morning off. Bulls trying to extend this uh, six-week 12% rally that's taken the S&P to a 52-week high. Futures choppy, though, as yields are up to about a one-week high ahead of CPI and the Fed on Wednesday. Our roadmap begins with the six-week rally. S&P coming off its highest close since March of 22, with stocks set for a muted open. Plus, we got deals in focus this Monday morning. Macy's getting a nearly $6 billion buyout offer. Cigna abandons its pursuit of Humana. And Oxy, it expands in the Permian Basin. And Apple's bullish call. Why one analyst expects it to be the first trillion-dollar company next year. You might have noticed our screen looks a bit different today. It's all part of a new look for CNBC that we're pretty excited about. Over time, we do hope it'll make it easier for you to understand the market and the stories that we bring to you. Uh, We're going to run through a few examples, guys, of uh, different looks, different charts, uh, the way information is telegraphed differently. The ticker's a little bit different as well. Very clean. Very clean and easy to understand. Yeah. Ooh. Ooh. Whoa. With some fun music. Mm, I like that. You know, people uh, oftentimes can be somewhat resistant to change. Not us. So just give us a chance. Give us a chance. Give it all a chance. I kind of like it initially, and I'm sure it'll grow on me. Let's do dollar-yen. Can we get a dollar-yen in the new look? Most important chart of the day. It's up today. The dollar's strong. The yen is weak after some Bank of Japan rumors that they might not get out of negative rates forever. Just, I, I think you know, that's a. It's the that's, first place I look in the that's morning. That's where we so should be we leading the, the show today. <laughs> sure, dollar yen. Why not? I know they said pick a chart, any chart, to oh, see it okay. in the new look. So I picked my favorite chart. Got it. All right. Well, I'll pick uh, the Faber report then, because that's my favorite. I'm going to have Shocking. one later today, uh, so we can do it again. But I want to get a look at it. Oh, looks great. Is that a new picture of you? I guess so. Yes, yes, it is. That's a new picture. Very it's updated. Yes, yeah, old. How about that? Is that what you were thinking? No, I was thinking yeah. handsome. Uh-huh. Handsome. Okay. I don't yeah. know about that. Anyway. Serious. All right. Journalist. Thanks, guys. I like that. Can't wait for that to happen in real time. Let's turn to the broader markets now as the major indices ride this six-week win streak. You know, it's been amazing to see the strength in stocks overall. We had a new high for the year on Friday, or closed at a new high for the year for the S&P 500. We're now, what, 4%, 4.3% from an all-time high that was reached back in January 3rd, 2022, Carl. And the question I think people are asking is, we've got a lot of macro events this week. Can we continue to climb through year-end and into 2024? We've got central bank meetings galore. We have the Fed. We have the ECB. We have the Bank of England. We have Norway. We have Mexico. We have Brazil, which has been cutting rates. And then, of course, we have some supply. We're still watching this Treasury supply in the next day, today and tomorrow. We're going to auction off some 10-year and 30-year bonds, which people are watching. The last 30-year was not that great. And then we've got CPI ahead of the Fed meeting on Tuesday, which has been a market mover and is key to some of the strength is that Inflation has come down even more maybe than expected at this point. That's what Goldman said over the weekend uh, has uh, come down even better than our optimistic expectations. They uh, lower their forecast for core PCE, move their expectation of the first cut from Q4 to Q3. Goldman's looking for about 50 basis points next year, not quite as much as consensus. Uh, But yeah, we'll also get New York Fed and see if we can back up the University of Michigan expectations on Friday with some additional data. That's good news. Yeah, it was really good. Good news to see it come down and in confidence go up. Although you could just argue it's because of the 
the decline in gas prices, which is also good news, but it's why consumers expect less inflation and also why they're feeling better about their spending power. So one of the risks, I think, going into 2024, you wonder, what are the risks? Because everything feels good, right? Soft landing, Fed's done. One is that there's some sort of inflationary flare-up, and it could come in the form of higher oil prices. We don't know exactly what's happened. Geopolitical tensions remain quite high. So that's one. I think another risk, Carl, is that that unemployment weakens further. It was a big surprise to get a 3.7% down unemployment rate, so that was good on Friday. But if employment goes, say, negative in terms of adding jobs, that could lead to some recessionary worries. I'm just, I'm just going through some of what people are chattering about could be risks sure. for next year, not necessarily base case and not necessarily what's happening now because the data has been good and supportive. Uh, we've said it many times, but again, just remind people, we get PPI, CPI, and then the Fed meeting, and those play out, what, Wednesday, Thursday? What are the days here, Sarah? Well, the, the CPI is on Tuesday, Tuesday, and then Wednesday will be the Fed meeting, right. and it's not just the meeting. Like, who cares? We know they're not going to raise rates. It's the SEP, the Summary of Economic Projections, where we get the dots. That's where the Fed is going to do the talking. In other words, is the Fed cool with the market pricing in 100 basis points of cuts next year? We're going to find out this week. And are they going to push back against some of these looser financial conditions? Leading up to the quiet period, they seemed okay with it. You know, Powell maybe tried to talk back a little bit, but it didn't work, and the market rallied off of that. So they will be able to express themselves in how many cuts they project for 2024, because they're going to give those forecasts. Remember the last time we got the forecast in September, they expected two cuts in 2024. So will they catch up with the market? Will they, walk, will they keep it at two cuts as to not get the market too excited? That's going to be the key question. Yeah, really a lot of interesting pivot points. One discussion over the weekend at Renaissance Macro was the idea that if you look at the jobs number and the additional jobs, the additional earnings, the additional work week, and yeah. if CPI does come in with a goose egg, that's all real income growth for the consumer, which is great news unless you're hawkish and you worry that it's going to fuel again a bout of inflationary spending. Yeah, I mean, some of the some of the committee members, I'm thinking of Michelle Bowman, for instance, Fed governor, will point to the fact that the economy is still strong. Unemployment is still low and inflation is still above target. And what, what are we expecting this week on core? We're expecting it to still rise. We're still looking at a core. It should be zero percent on the headline month to month. But core could rise 0.2.3 percent. And it's last time it was at four percent, which is double where the Fed needs it to be. So the Fed is in no place to say, OK, mission accomplished. We're looking ahead to cuts. The market is sort of there. And so the question will be, is the market too excited and pricing it in too early when it comes to May and whether that'll knock things around a little bit in terms of this good, the good vibes we've had in the market? Uh, we got a lot of M&A news to hit uh, this morning, uh, but some of it actually is about deals that are not going to happen. In fact, that's where, we'll, we, where we will start this morning. You can see the impact it's having on shares of Cigna. Why? Well, Cigna's uh, essentially told us they're not going to pursue Humana. They didn't say that specifically. What they did say is, oh, we're going to be buying back an awful lot of stock and obviously uh, spending a lot of our cash flow on that. And so you get the message. Of course, this follows... Uh, what was reporting a number of weeks ago from the Wall Street Journal about potential talks between Cigna and Humana. Now, uh, viewers may recall that I reported on as well what was perhaps significant opposition building among some of Cigna's shareholders, having spoken to a couple of those large shareholders who indicated they did not want any deal in which Cigna would actually be the acquirer of Humana. Uh, and that would have expected to have been largely in stock, for which they felt was undervalued. And that goes back to... Uh, uh, the story we did, of course, here and then on uh, CNBC.com. 
They've listened to their shareholders. Um, over the last few weeks, I think any number of shareholders made it clear they did not feel that this was a strategy worth pursuing when it became clear that, in fact, it was going to be structured as a Cigna purchase of Humana, not as a merger of equals or not even as Humana potentially buying Cigna in some way uh, and then Cigna paying a big dividend. Those, at least, approaches might have gotten a bit more uh, support, but not just Cigna outright buying Humana. That was, the, that was what they were pursuing. That is what they are no longer pursuing, deciding instead to increase their share buyback, uh, an aggregate increase of $10 billion in incremental share repurchase, and $5 billion of that is going to happen fairly quickly by the end of the first half of 2024 executed some of it via what we call an accelerated share repurchase program that'll be conducted in the first quarter of 2024, all of which is having a positive impact on shares of Cigna, which were down some 15 plus percent since news of these talks first uh, surfaced. Uh, And uh, you can see right there it is rebounding almost or taking back a lot of uh, the losses that have taken place over these last trading sessions as at least the possibility of this deal was out there. As for Umana, Cigna seemed to be the only potential real buyer there. They're in the midst of what will be a CEO transition at the insurer. They're focused on Medicaid Advantage. Of course, remember, there had also been a big regulatory concern as well, not about that side of things, where Cigna was thought to be easily able to dispense of its its MA business, but uh, in terms of putting together the two companies' pharmacy benefit managers. None of that matters anymore, but the question now, guys, is what does Umana do uh, in terms of a future? kind of having to battle it out in what is already, it said, 2024 going to be a somewhat difficult year and with the CEO transition looming as well. Do you think that the, it was regulatory? Did the, did the FTC antitrust authorities cast a long shadow here or, or just Certainly the process. Like I think it was more shareholders. Yeah. It was simply shareholders saying, wait, you're going to buy something at 16 times using 10 times currency. And by the way, then to your point, Sarah, you're also going to be taking on what might be a very long regulatory review Mm. and put us in limbo for what might be 18 months or two years. So that's all that's all sort of what was behind this. And again, that's why the shareholders were were speaking quite uh, vocally to management saying, please do not do this. And ultimately, Cigna, Cigna, listen. Um, we got a couple other deals this morning. You know, Sarah, the Macy's transaction, yeah. potential transaction. You heard Andrew at the, the end of Squawk Box talking about it. Um, 21 bucks a share is what we at CNBC.com are reporting as the, as the current offer. Could go up, apparently. Got to do due diligence. Uh, I don't have anything on this deal. I know, you know, as, a, as reporting on the fundamentals as you have at Macy's yeah. for years, it hasn't always been a pretty picture. No, and it, it might seem like a nice valuation well, it's a 32% premium to Friday's close, but actually valuation is quite low. I've been reading about it. Enterprise value of Macy's stood at $10.6 billion on Friday, which is around five times EBITDA. This offer is about 5.4 times EBITDA. And retailers, usually with strong franchises, get a lot more than that, thanks to Medley Advisors for pointing out that point. Look, there's been a lot of consolidation and upheaval in the department store space, Kohl's, and we've seen bankruptcies like JCPenney um, and Macy's. I think when you talk about a Macy's deal, David, you have to talk about the real estate. Yes. And that's potentially what they're after here on this deal, which has been valued by some estimates. I think Cowan has it around 6 to $8 billion that they're sitting on in terms of just real estate, which is more than the I mean, most of it on 34th offer. Street, right? Correct. I mean, that's, that's the, by the far the largest sim, uh, single asset. So they own that. And, and that's where the value has been considered here. I do wonder if there, if it sets up for a bit of a bidding war, given that $5.8 billion price 
sitting on so much real estate if there's interest. There's been interest before. I think Starboard was looking at this back Starboard many years ago, yeah. and it wasn't a great pick for them. Jeff Smith had talked specifically about the real estate value and specifically, of course, about 34th Street, the, the giant flagship store there, and what it was worth on its own. But frankly, none of that came to pass in terms of doing some sort of transaction to try to realize that, that value at that point. They've tried to turn around the fundamental business, Jeff Gannett. They've had some success. I mean, it's not like some analysts like this stock, but it's a, it's a shell of where it used to be, both in terms of the number of stores and the sales that it's, that it's had. I mean, it's, it's a challenge industry for sure. Well, uh, department stores are tough because, um, as City says this morning, uh, it's where companies sell other people's stuff. Uh, and, and in a world of e-commerce, that gets, uh, it's difficult to do that, that model. Uh, City does point out they have done, as you say, uh, some monetization of real estate, but there's probably more to be, more to be done, uh, whether it's Herald Square or Chicago. Uh, but it's hard to comment given that we don't know whether financing's been lined up and certainly no comment from the company. Yeah, uh, I, I'm afraid I don't have any, anything to add to that as well beyond our own reporting here uh, that CNBC.com has, has done as well. Um, listen, uh, you know, interest from parties uh, in terms of the real estate value of retailers is not new, whether it's Hudson Bay or whether it goes back to Steve Roth and Vornado, which started with the big purchase of Alexander's. Mm. Some of our viewers may remember that uh, that story. Uh, you know, this is a theme that's gone on for many years. We'll see whether Macy's has any interest in that uh, potential deal. And to your point, very important whether they have all the financing they need to get it done. And we'll get to Oxy. Yeah. Crowd Rock, not yeah. even done. No. Uh, that was, you know, big headline, but a lot of that is debt. Over $9 billion in debt. We're talking about Oxy's, uh, Oxy's deal to acquire Crown Rock. Um, again, it's a Permian deal, though. A lot been going on there, obviously. Hess and, and PDD being the, the largest of them. Yeah. Uh, Pioneer. Yeah, Vicki Holabon squawk this morning. Yeah. Uh, still to come this morning, TD Cowan names Delta one of its top picks for 24. We're going to talk to the analysts behind that call. Take a look at the pre-market. As Sarah said, very busy week on tap. Not just the central banks and eco data, but quad witching and an S&P rebalance on Friday. Uh, future's pretty flat. Back in a minute. Looking ahead to 2024, our next guest picks Delta as her best idea in the airline sector, saying it's set to differentiate itself from its peers. Helene Becker, TD Cowan airline analyst, joins us this morning. Helene has a buy on Delta, price target of 49. It's great to see you again, Helene. You lay out a bunch of uh, optimistic reasons to like the stock, uh, but it seems like international and corporate are where you say there's really more room to run. Exactly so. Hi, Carl. Hope all is well with you. Um, that's what we're thinking, that Delta has a really good opportunity to grow its international business. They're going to grow in the Atlantic by about 6%. And they have quite a lot of good opportunity to hook up with their um, alliance partners. They're Sky Team alliance partners, Air France, um, KLM, and Virgin Atlantic. So that gives them exposure um, really from France, Amsterdam, and London, almost the rest of the world that they maybe people couldn't access from the U.S. And then on the um, on corporate, so here's how we think about corporate. Um, air quotes around everybody talks about corporate not coming back, but pragmatically, um, the U.S. economy has grown quite a lot in the past four years. And so what managed travel will come back has come back. What really hasn't come back that I think people 
um, are forgetting is that one-day trip. And eventually, when people can trust the industry again, it will come back. Mm. It sounds like that's where you think loyalty may fold in, yeah? Exactly. Um, Delta has already a very good group of loyal customers. And as the American Express card becomes accepted in more locations, we think they'll be able to pick up additional credit card holders. And it's proven by really all the airlines that if you have a credit card, you're more loyal. So what's with the stocks, Helene? I mean, they're, they're barely <laughs> up year to date. They haven't been that great. I guess there are worries about demand continuing and whether we've seen the, the bulk of it, especially if we're heading into a slower period or even a recession. They've got high debt loads coming out of COVID and high interest rates. And these are just some of the bare, bare reasons against your call, right? Yeah, those are really good bare reasons, too. Thanks, Sarah, for pointing them out. Um, so, so here's how we think about that. To your point, um, as, as it relates to Delta specifically, our view is that um, Delta is actually in a pretty good place with respect to its balance sheet. Its goal is to get net debt down to $15.15 billion, which would make it among the best um, of the, the um of the big four airlines, uh, maybe second to Southwest. And then um, getting back investment grade credit, which would mean their borrowing costs would be more attractive. Um, they're one notch below IG right now. So that's something um, that would be a catalyst for the shares next year. And then the other um, points that you make with respect to a potential recession, our view is that we've seen the decline in domestic. Um, it's not growing as fast as it had been, and fares are already off their highs, which were unsustainable anyway. And we think that in the Atlantic, certainly, airfares next summer will be lower than they were this summer, not because the U.S. airlines are growing that much, but because the European airlines which undergrew in 2023 are now upping their capacity. So it's better for Delta to um, do that expansion. It's what, mid single digits at 6% and allow their partners to grow with their own metal. Delta still gets the benefit of their joint venture. Oh, that's interesting. Uh, next time, Elaine, we'll talk some uh, labor and maybe uh, attempts by the rest of the industry to consolidate. It's great to see you, Elaine Becker. Good to see you. T.D. Cowan. Speaking of Delta and the airlines, don't miss our exclusive with Delta's Ed Bastian today, 10 a.m. Eastern time. A lot to talk with him about. Taking another look at futures here as we count you down to the opening bell. Again, coming off of six straight weeks of gains. Look like, looks like we're open for, except for an unchanged open right now ahead of a lot of key events this week, including the Federal Reserve meeting on Wednesday. More Squawk on the Street when we come right back. The acquisition of Crown Rock further strengthens us in, in terms of adding um, uh, incredible inventory. Um, they actually have um, uh, 1,700 well locations that will add to our inventory. 1,250 of those wells are less than $60 break even. So the inventory is important to us. That was Occidental CEO Vicki Halla earlier on Squawk Box talking, of course, about their decision to buy Permian producer Crown Rock. Now, the overall price tag is $12 billion, but $9.1 billion of that is new debt. They're going to also issue $1.7 billion of uh, common equity and, um, and then also assume $1.2 billion of Crown Rock's existing debt. You can see it's not having much of an impact on shares of uh, Warren Buffett's favorite oil company, 
Sarah, as we know, of course, uh, Berkshire controls a, a lot of the stock here. Um, but the Permian has become a real focus, uh, obviously, as well for Exxon with its decision to buy Pioneer uh, recently. They talk about uh, increased free cash flow on a diluted basis, including $1 billion in the first year. That's at least based on if WTI stays around 70 bucks a barrel. Chevron buying has, so a lot of industry consolidation and pressure to get bigger. You know, just reading one research note here, MKM Roth saying that it looks a little pricey, the deal, um, just on an initial take here. They're, they're measuring it on um, $83,000 per underdeveloped acre and $4.4 million per primary location. So just as, a, as an industry metric there, they also say that they, they thought the market reaction would be negative given the, the poorly timed acquisition, according to analysts, of the Anadarko deal, remember, from Oxy yes. back in 2019. Yeah, well, they, that's, the stock came under a great deal of pressure after that deal. Of course, as we know, that's when Buffett really became deeply involved, of course, helping to finance that transaction and get it over the, uh, over the finish line as well. Is, am, I, am I mistaken? Do they expect this to close in Q1? Uh, I believe that may be the case. It's not a, it's not a, you know, it's not a hard deal to get done. That said, you did get two second requests, but of course, much larger deals for both Chevron and Exxon. It's been active today uh, and over the weekend in deals either getting written or unwritten. Let's get the opening bell here in the CNBC Real Time Exchange. That's a big boy. Garden of Dreams Foundation and MSG providing unforgettable experiences to children facing obstacles. At the NASDAQ, Steve Madden, designer and marketer of footwear and accessories, celebrating its 30th listing anniversary. Where do, where do you want to start? Well, it's kind of a fun day because it's, it's the day when analysts put out their top picks for 2024. And what I like about them is they, they often pick stocks that are underperformed or that the consensus isn't friendly on. They're not obvious. So maybe we could pick out a few of them and see if they're having an impact on the market. Nike got a little bit of love this morning, both from Barclays um, and from Citigroup. I think it was named a top pick at Barclays. Citigroup also says that, that Nike has a bit of a margin inflection here. So margin shrank for Nike this past year, but they think that'll turn around in the coming year. Remember, Nike's on an odd reporting schedule, so that's why it's getting some attention. It reports on December 21st. I believe. So it, it's, it's underperformed names like Lulu, for instance, and there's been macroeconomic weakness in China and even in North America here, but a, a lot of the analysts say that it's being underappreciated. And even in places like China, where the consumer spending outlook isn't all that clear, Nike is still taking share and doing quite well. Yeah. Uh, Barclays best idea, as you yeah. say, and then City goes to buy 135. Uh, Paris Olympics, they point out, yes. leaner inventory, less promotional. Yeah, they say history shows that, that Nike actually does typically see a lift in sales around Olympics. And obviously, they're already talking about it on the conference call, CEO John Donahoe saying they're ramping up the innovation into that. When they looked at the, the revenue performance during the Summer Olympics, so they see a several hundred basis point lift in the two quarters leading up to the Olympics and during the Summer Games. So another potential catalyst for Nike there ahead of earnings. Stock's up 1.5% here at the Oak. Yeah, some few, a few constructive calls. Rosenblatt on Spotify, uh, they double their target from 150 to 300. They go to buy. Of course, uh, last week brought the news of uh, the layoffs. 
uh, some 17% of Spotify's uh, workforce, despite the fact that the shares have done extraordinarily well this year. Yeah, they say that could be either red as scary or promising, <laughs> that analyst note, <laughs> right? What, what, what Spotify sees it could foretell a surprising slowdown, for instance, in sales growth, but they take the other side and say that if sales and jobs are strong, then this is going to be very good for earnings and for margins. And so they, they upgraded it to 300. That's still a big climb, about 50% from where we are right now, even though, as you say, Spotify has already had a 150% up year. Um, did want to uh, hit Elfrey El Harris, uh, if I can. You know, sometimes there's activism that we don't report on, uh, in part because it happens behind the scenes, and in this case, that, uh, that appears to have been the case. D.E. Shaw, press release this morning, out from L3 Harris. They named two new directors to their board. Kirk Hachigian, he's the former chair and CEO uh, of uh, Geldwin Holding, but also of Cooper Industries, which was sold to Eaton, I believe, under his watch. Um, and as well, uh, Bill Swanson, uh, retired chair and CEO of Raytheon, um, who's 74 years old. Uh, he was uh, CEO of Raytheon from 2003 to 2014, chairman from 04 until he retired as well in 14. So you get two new directors there, uh, and it appears as well they've entered into a cooperation agreement with D.E. Shaw, uh, which they say is currently one of the company's largest investors. Pursuant to the agreement, D.E. Shaw and L3 Harris will agree on one additional independent director to be added to the board next year. And as a result of that, D.E. Shaw has entered into uh, the, what they call customary voting and standstill provisions. But D.E. Shaw is a kind of a quiet activist. They were involved in Exxon, the first go-around there in terms of changes to the board of directors before Engine 1. They were involved in FedEx. They were involved in Lowe's some time back and L3. So wanted to note that shares actually ticking up a bit. Uh, on that news as well. Um, they will now have 14 directors, 13 of whom will be independent on the L3 Harris board, Sarah. It's the second best performer in the S&P. The first is Cigna, which is soaring up 14.5%. We mentioned the abandoned deal for Humana, the new $10 billion buyback. Investors appear pleased with that, at least on the Cigna front. No doubt. It was one of those situations where, frankly, everybody's like, where did the leak come from? Why? Who knows? Uh, it wasn't to me. I have no sense as to where or why. But the journal uh, reported again a number of weeks ago that they were in talks. It did appear that those talks were designed to have Cigna acquire Humana. Given their credit rating and their debt capacity, a lot of it would have had to have been stock. And as we reported, shareholders were very much opposed, at least some, the ones I spoke to very much opposed to the idea of a, a stock-based deal under which Cigna would have done that. And they're very happy that now that the company has changed its tack and going to be devoting a lot of its uh, cash flow to buying back stock, uh, which, as you just said, Sarah, they're doing. And also a lot of it in an accelerated repurchase that will take place as soon as the first quarter of 2024, Carl. There's been a lot of succession news uh, last couple of sessions. On Friday, you had uh, Chip Berg leaving uh, Levi next year, Spotify CFO, the Crown Castle CEO. Today, the journal points out that Stephanie Pope, uh, named COO of Boeing, calls her the front runner to be the next CEO of that industrial giant. Um, and then we got Shake Shack, Randy Garuti, uh, retiring in 24. Uh, they do reiterate their guidance. We're going to talk to him and Danny yes. uh, this morning in the 11 a.m. hour which is now called Money Movers. Yes, very exciting. New launch of a, of, of a, new, of a new name. And yeah, we're going to talk to Randy and Danny Meyer together. So board, 
and, and Randy about why the time is now. Shake Shack has had a good year. It's up more than 50% this year. For Shake Shack, it's not just about the consumer's health, but about expansion plans, right? A brand that has mm. very aggressive plans to expand in places beyond just JFK, where they have about a thousand of them. When I think of money, and movers. I think of you two. I mean, immediately I, I just say Shake Shack. Yeah, no, I think of I think of Carl and Sarah. Yeah, and the guests money that we and movers. I think they move money. Oh, they do. They move Which money. They really move markets. The whole thing. Right. I I wish they'd gone with my idea. Seven stocks. You know, seven stocks. Seven stocks. Yeah. That's what you want. That's what you want. I want an hour that. devoted to seven stocks. Yeah, and I want to call. Then it seven how stocks. can we talk about dollar yen? Well, because it's related to <laughs> the seven stocks. to Nvidia somehow. Speaking of the to seven stocks, one of the stocks. seven stocks. Can we talk about the seven they're stocks? Not, they're not up today. No, they're down today. Yields are they're, up. Actually, so they're down rather they're down rather sharply today. Apple um, gets a lot of analyst love, but it is not helping right now. It's just fallen below a three trillion dollar market value. Uh, has Apple, uh, but again, look at the move. Well, that's the magnificent seven overall. Now not up quite hundred percent for the year, and then Apple as well. But you can see all. Uh, all down. They rallied, though, uh, last week. Yeah, and today, uh, TD Cowan names NVIDIA one of their best ideas for 24, uh, target of 700. Uh, they named Snow another best idea. Interestingly, we are going to get some switch outs in the NASDAQ 100. Uh, look at names like eBay today. Uh, it's leaving. Lucid, uh, Zoom are all getting cut. And then names like Dash and uh, MongoDB getting added with some positive gains this morning. Yeah, we'll watch that rebalancing. Look, the NASDAQ 100 is up 48% year to date, which I think tells you the story. NASDAQ Composite, which is a little broader, but also encompasses a lot of these names, up 37% year to date. And there's the AI tailwind, which we do wonder how much will carry into 2024. You know, if, if a lot of the good news is baked in, I think it's just hard to tell, right? We're, we're going to start to look to monetization of AI in names other than just NVIDIA and Microsoft. We are. We've seen that. We are. Uh, and, then, and then the larger question, Sarah, that I know you're going to be following and we'll talk about for years to come is the productivity gains potentially yeah. that will finally, what that are expected to come or how much will come from the implementation of various generative AI software within the enterprise. Across industries. Across I mean, industries. Is, it, is it going to help energy companies? Is it going to help right. financials? I think if Jim were here, he would note the move in financials, which is higher this morning and has been really flexing some strength um, lately. Financials as a group, which he says obviously is good, good for them and good for overall economy. Industrials are up today. So a little bit of a cyclical bid, despite the fact that tech is down and yields are up. I think as long as yields don't spike or get out of our range, then... Yep then the market can continue to do okay, and that's what we're seeing today. All right, time for a, a Faber report. Let's get that picture. Roll that new animation, everybody. You look a little befuddled in that picture, don't you think? Like, hmm. <laughs> oh. Look like you're about to make a call. I, you know what, by the way, uh, I've gotten a couple of calls back that would have potentially helped uh, me uh, with this current Faber report. It's on Paramount. Uh, I'm also going to have something at the end on the Endeavor sale process, so stay tuned for that. But let's start on Paramount. It was Friday, actually, that Sarah and I were uh, on air when I talked about finally having to make some phone calls because of reporting that indicated at least there was uh, a good amount of action around uh, the idea specific to David Ellison and Skydance and Redbird, the private equity firm, and the potential purchase of National Amusements control position in Paramount. What can I tell you at this point? Obviously, the stock moved up a lot on Friday. You can see it's adding a bit to its gains right now. 
And I, I, you know, again, I may have even more based on the, a couple of callbacks that I've gotten. But at this point, based on a number of conversations with people uh, in uh, close to the situation, it does appear that the level of conversation involving Paramount in some way and its control shareholder, National Amusements, led by Sherry Redstone, of course, has increased. There, it certainly does seem to be more conversation. There have been no offers made of any kind at this point. Uh, and, you know, for those of us who've been covering this company for so long, sometimes it's hard to gauge conversation leading to offer or how serious things are. But this does appear to be a bit more serious than in the past, perhaps. Um, whether or not we actually get some sort of an offer and or potential deal, perhaps we'll have to wait and see in the next few months. I've said a number of times, and I think there's a general view that 2024, when it comes to consolidation, uh, is viewed as an important year. And when I say that, I'm talking sort of old media consolidation, the amount of money being spent on streaming by the likes of Paramount or Warner Brothers Discovery or our parent company Comcast with Peacock. Uh, you know, there are those who believe that's got to come to some sort of end here, and consolidation at least might be one way to make it more palatable. But whether or not you actually see a deal remains unclear. And what the structure of said deal might be is also something that is yet to be really fully determined. Certainly, sorry, Redstone could decide to simply sell her control stake at a significant premium. And if you're Skydance and David Ellison, backed by Redbird, that might be a transaction you were focused on, in part because its relative size would be a lot less, certainly, than buying all of Paramount. But it would also... Um, bring its own set of challenges, namely, all right, you do that, then you want to merge Skydance into Paramount, but it's still a related party transaction that's probably going to, rela- uh, probably going to require a special committee. And anything you did, or at least anything of significance in terms of changes at Paramount, in terms of assets, would probably be or require a special committee. It's burdensome. It could take a long time. It could be difficult. And so there are those who say, well, you really might want to consider just buying the whole thing. Now, there's not that much interest in all of Paramount. Would you be able to pluck out the studio? That's kind of a key question. And it's unclear whether that's the case. Otherwise, you've got to buy the whole thing. The studio is by far the, the, uh, the most sought-after asset. Yeah, would Netflix be interested? They might be. Would our own company or Warner Brothers Discovery? Certainly, Paramount on its own has value, but a lot of companies don't want to take on the linear cable networks. Warner Brothers Discovery would appear to be the only true operating company right now that could make a whole company offer without a huge amount of regulatory burden on it. But the question is there, hey, Zaslav, who runs that company, has been taking down the leverage. Would you really want to reverse course there? You would be able to take on a streaming service, the losses of which are lessening, and you could cut those significantly if, in fact, eliminate them entirely, make your own max offering more robust. But you'd still be getting bigger in linear cable, which is the last thing your investor base wants. So, I, you know, I guess I'd say lack of clarity. Let me end with this. It does appear that Sherry Redstone, after October 7th and that horrific attack from Hamas and Israel, where she's always had a lot of focus in terms of her charitable work, both Israel and anti-Semitism, has become even more involved. And some have described it almost as a turning point for her in terms of how she may want to spend uh, her days from here. And so that does lend at least some, I think, sense that, you know, maybe there is more to this this time around. Do keep in mind, there's all sorts of other things, double triggers on their debt, you know, changing control, and then if they were to get uh, downgraded, you'd need to refinance. That's not something that would be easily accomplished. Um, 
We'll be following it, we'll be following it closely. Certainly next year does appear to be a key year when it comes to potential consolidation as you take a look at, uh, at Redstone. Uh, at Sun Valley. All right, real quickly, guys, on Endeavor. Uh, that's a deal that is out there that we know there's interest from. It's 70-plus percent voting shareholder Silver Lake. Um, but I got a quick update for you because we came in today. Some people were hoping for we'd see uh, an announcement of who the winner was on U.S. Steel, and we might even see an Endeavor deal. Here's my, uh, my quick update. They're not close. Um, they're not close yet. There's still due diligence going on from Silver Lake. Um, they have not discussed price. They have not set up a special committee yet because, of course, no offer has yet been made. The business by business due diligence from Silver Lake continues. For those who'd hoped somehow that this would be a year-end deal, that does not appear to be the case. Perhaps a bid is made before the end of January. And so there's a quick update for you, Carl, on Paramount and on Endeavor. All right, David, a uh, bit of a mixed bag this morning. Uh, Dow's lost some opening gains, up about 30. Let's get to Bob Bassani. Hey, Bob. Six-week win streak for the S&P. We'll see if we can continue that. Remember, we're 52-week highs here. A lot of momentum across the board. Just take a look at some of these sectors that have been strong. So the bank stocks have been terrific, highest levels since the banking crisis in March. Kathy Wood's ARK fund up 57%. Uh, the equal weight uh, S&P 500 has had a very strong month. That gives you an indication of how broad the advance has been. REIT stocks have been moving up. All interest rate sensitive sectors have been doing well. We've seen, look at some of these momentum leaders recently. Boeing, uh, the airlines have come back after a terrible first part of the year. Home builders are at new heights. Simon Property Group. Uh, we saw some of the regional banks like Fifth Third move up. FedEx was at a new high on Friday. Ingersoll Rand was at a new high on Friday. You get the idea. This is a very, very broad market advance right here. Uh, for the week, as I mentioned, new high on Friday for the S&P. But when I talk to people about the biggest risks, some people think a bad inflation print with the CPI uh, might be a problem. But most people think that the biggest risk right now uh, is overall uh, is the issue with um, uh, the, where the Federal Reserve is going to be going and what they're going to be saying. So a lot of people think Powell's going to push back against these expectations of a rate cut next year very heavily. And that could be the biggest risk to the markets uh, right now here. So we're going to be digesting all that CPI and PPI data. Remember, we've got a 10-year Treasury auction today. Finally, uh, Sarah and David, we're talking about uh, Cigna's adding $10 billion in their buyback after uh, abandoning the Humana deal. This has not been a great deal for buybacks overall. Uh, we've seen about $780 billion this year. That's the estimate for this year. Normally, in the last few years, we've been doing $800, $900 billion in buybacks. So that's a little bit below what the normal important thing for buybacks is cash flow, and cash flow has been decent, but we are starting to see some issues, of course, with lower rates. Uh, and higher rates this year, in the first part of the year, I think definitely affected where buybacks were going overall. So guys, the important thing right now is whether or not we can continue to see buybacks low and cash flow high. If that happens, I think in 2024, we're definitely going to see a, a rebound in, in the buyback scenario. Guys, back to you. Thanks. See you in a bit, uh, Bob Pisani. As we go to break, let's uh, watch bonds. As we said earlier, a little bit elevated today. Ten-year back to 426. Obviously, you remember last week when we got into the 415 range. Uh, not a lot of data headed our way today, but that's going to change tomorrow, of course, with CPI and the Fed decision on Wednesday. Holding 4,600, though, on the S&P, 4,605. Don't go anywhere. Microsoft announcing a new partnership with the AFL-CIO. Our Eamon Javers is in D.C. with the latest. Morning, Eamon. 
Good morning, Carl. It's a big labor deal. It's happening uh, just in the room off to my left here at AFL-CIO headquarters in Washington, D.C. Microsoft and the labor organization announcing a new partnership here that they say is designed to focus on worker rights and responsibilities in this new era of AI. The whole fear of massive unemployment related to AI is what they're addressing here uh, in the room. Specifically, the two organizations say there are three elements to this partnership. Here's what they say that they're going to do uh, in the coming months and years. They're going to share AI information between labor leaders and workers. So that env envisions a series of uh, educational seminars by Microsoft uh, officials to labor organizers to help them understand the direction that AI is going. They're going to incorporate worker perspectives and expertise, they say, in the development of AI technology at Microsoft. So that envisions you know, real feedback from workers who are using AI to the people who are developing the product as well. And then they're also going to talk about helping to shape public policy that supports the technology skills and needs of frontline workers. So that is the overall policy environment in this country uh, in terms of AI and workers. And obviously, guys, we are coming off of a very big year for big labor. A couple of uh, labor leaders in the room here for this announcement. UAW's Sean Fain is here coming off of a big win uh, for his workers. Also, some representatives of SAG-AFTRA are in the room today as well in the wake of that Hollywood writer's strike. So uh, there's a lot of uh, motion, mo mobility here behind big labor going into the end of 2023 in this era of low unemployment. They're, just, they're determined now to make sure that that era of low unemployment stays in place even in the era of AI. Guys, back over to you. So thinking back to Senator Schumer's uh, confab on AI a few weeks ago where they invited Randy Weingarten of the teachers union. And I can't uh, decide whether this is uh, somewhat theatrical or if they're actually trying to help labor drive policy long term. Well, I think it's both. I mean, Liz Schuler, the president of AFL-CIO, said she was also at that uh, AI confab up on Capitol Hill, along with Elon Musk and all the other leading lights of AI. Uh, for Microsoft, look, this does ha help in terms of publicity around its AI efforts to say we are not trying to kill jobs. We're trying to work with labor. But, you know, there is a theatrical element to all of these. There's a performative aspect to it, and we're seeing some of that in the other room right now. Yeah, especially with questions about whether AI will replace labor. Thank you very much, Eamon Javers. When we come back, Wharton Professor Jeremy Siegel on his outlook for stocks, riding the six-week win streak as the markets kind of hang in there unchanged. The Dow down four points right now. S&P, little change, but that is masking some of the strength we're getting in certain sectors. For instance, consumer staples, healthcare, industrials, and financials are all higher. We'll be right back. You've been listening to the opening bell on CNBC's Squawk on the Street. All opinions expressed by the Squawk on the Street participants are solely their opinions and do not reflect the opinions of CNBC, NBC Universal, or their parent company or affiliates, and may have been previously disseminated by them on television, radio, internet, or another medium. You should not treat any opinion expressed on this podcast as a specific inducement to make a particular investment or follow a particular strategy, but only as an expression of an opinion. Such opinions are based upon information Squawk on the Street participants consider reliable, but neither CNBC nor its affiliates and or subsidiaries warrant its completeness or accuracy, and it should not be relied upon as such. To view the full Squawk on the Street disclaimer, please visit cnbc.com forward slash Squawk on the Street disclaimer.